0: Welcome to the second part of Jim McNamara's Senior Man feature episode with Jerry Smith, Jr. of the Baltimore City Fire Department. This episode picks up with guest host James McNamara, who's a senior firefighter at the FDNY and serves as a human performance advisor for Leadership Under Fire. He's also the principal author of the Leadership Under Fire Senior Man's Performance Journal. Our guest, Jerry Smith, Jr., is a firefighter with the Baltimore City Fire Department, currently assigned to Rescue Company One, and is a member of the BCFD dive team. In the previous episode, they discussed Jerry's early career, the role of the senior firefighter, and lessons learned during Baltimore's periods of civil unrest. Now they'll discuss Jerry's diving career, optimizing human performance, and the value of being lifelong learners.
1: You've been a true student of the job for many years, Jerry, and now you're aggressively pursuing the study of human performance. What has been the most striking thing that you have learned about human
2: and mental
1: performance?
2: So the the school of hard knocks from some some life experiences, which... We'll, we'll get into with a diving accident, uh, but but also getting into reading about this. And, and one of the books we'll talk about later on, which was, you know, Deep Survival. And the, the, the mental aspect of performance is that understanding I can make decisions that will kill me. My brain will tell me the wrong thing to do. And that... That was difficult, and, and that was something that was very humbling for me to understand. Okay, we got to work, or I got to work in developing, you know, mental skills cues that are going to have me go in the other direction instead of being stressed, you know, being overwhelmed. How do I reverse that to where I can reduce? The decision-making process so I'm not being so taxed so stressed conserve mental energy I think if if there was anything I could tell you why Jason and I hit it off when we met in in late 2000 he used to come to truck 15 and ride with us and when, when I first met Jason, I met him through Andy Whitehead. Andy's a captain of the BCFD, but Andy and I worked together at 15, and he would invite Jason up to ride. The the first time Jason even saw me was me coming in at shift change and my meticulous routine of setting up my gear and setting up all the equipment on the rig. And he, he took that as a note of like, Man, that guy's kind of dialed in. Why are you doing that? And it's like I don't have time to think, going to the truck and going to the call, to worry about getting dressed. And that's what you know, Bob Athanas said: create yeah. a routine and discipline and habit that reduces as much mental energy or decision making that I have to focus on, because I got the bigger picture that I need to focus on, and and that's what's tough, and and that's. You know, again, we talk about trying to teach that to the young guys today. I don't care senior man or not. This is a huge thing we can get to the new guys, understanding about yourself and coming to work. Excellent. Excellent. I would offer
1: two points on this, Jerry. First, we come to the why. Again, I was a complete outsider to the fire service, came here by accident. And I was just dumbstruck. The first few fires we went to, you you know, just a sheer chaos, and then you watch this like choreography of chaos. Guys just moving in their positions, and bang, it was out. And like, I couldn't understand, like, how and why do these guys do? Why do they risk all of this you know, for people they don't know? Why do these guys? How do they do it? How do you? How do you motivate them to do it? As human beings, we we need connectedness. We need to be part of something. I think that's even more so for men, because a, a man without purpose or meaning. Is actually a pretty dangerous, uh, pretty dangerous individual. But in the fire service, especially for us, I can only speak about our, our department. You are part of something bigger and greater than yourself. And that really spurs and drives and propels you to do things that on your own, you could never dream of doing. It's those things that the great ones taught us about building those relationships or right? about talking in, in the kitchen without a television, I might add. <laughs> The building of those relationships are everything that you build the trust. And the, the great example I tell my young guys is something that I call the sacred contract. If 26 is working on the door in a tenement, and 40 truck or a 43 truck or a 14 truck, they give the, the tap on the shoulder and say, We're going upstairs. In that moment, they have now placed their lives in our hands. I mean, we're outside of combat. Do you place your life in the hands of someone else? And and oftentimes this could be people you don't even know. They might be just there for the day. They're detailed or they're doing overtime. That's an extraordinary expression of really it's love. You know, it's that you care so much about those people that you will, you will never allow them to get harmed. That's a remarkable thing, the way of what we have. And this is something that you need to have those relationships and, and, It really it's it's the center core of everything. Uh, I'll take the next one, Jerry. Given that you're learning and understanding about human performance, what advice would you offer a young Jerry
2: Smith 20 years ago? It's a great question. And I what I had dealt with early on, and I think I joke with my Catholic raising and Catholic guilt, I think which is a default button that we have is I was always so quick to go negative on myself. Um, Anytime I struggled, whether it was learning how to drive the tiller truck or just, you know, wanting to be up to par for the guys at the firehouse, if I screwed up, you know, I would certainly hear about it, but the, the negativity that would just, that's the only thing that would stay in my head. And Jason was just recently on a podcast called the coach in your head and he addresses this aspect about with the young guys you know how much are you negative with yourself when you screw up and i i wish i had learned to be a lot more positive with my self-talk and and probably be a little more resilient in that regard and i think i could have handled things better uh because of it so that that's one big thing i would have definitely uh would have liked to have addressed and, and fortunately i got it through one of my lieutenants was when when my lieutenant got back he was a sergeant major in the marines and he got back from a deployment and he saw i was struggling with with certain things in the company in a large part due to negativity with myself and he he kind of reset everything about, okay, you need work, but he really spun it in a positive, constructive way. And that, that was huge. That 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 was all I needed. And then I was off to the races.
1: Yeah, yeah. I would offer uh, two things. One, recovery physically. This was something that uh, Jimmy Lopez talks about, Coleman Ruiz talks about. I came on this job broken. Like the way we grew up, if you were not in school or working, you were on the court playing. You know, by the time I got onto this job, i was turning 30 uh i was i was broken you know and and i wish i would have understood that that the need that a critical part of growth is is recovery and the second thing like we've we've both hit on is failure i first of all i tell my young guys there is no mistake that you're going to make in the new york city fire department that i haven't already made none right and i remember you know serious failures and and I, I just it carried it with me for years, and that is not healthy. Um, it, it's not healthy when you're taking it into the fight, and it's certainly not helpful when you take it home uh, to your family. So, learning how to process that, to understand that we're human, learning how to process and deal with failure was a huge one. Has an improved understanding of human performance resulted in any changes to how you and your company train and prepare, operate fires
2: and emergencies, or reflect
1: and learn from both success and failure?
2: I think you and I will both be in agreement because you and I have spoken about this at length. But but from a failure end, getting hurt and getting burned uh, by not putting on a proper piece of equipment, the direct result was dehydration, exhaustion, and so the aspect of recovery and rest and just taking better care of myself. One of my chiefs always has a quote, arrested firemen makes a good fireman and and he would make sure that in 24 hours you took some time during the day to put your head down for at least a good half hour and yeah. it makes a lot of sense you know there isn't some machoism to be running all 24 hours so hydration sleep rest are, are i think were, we're big things
1: yeah Moving
2: into this road was was yet another humbling
1: experience. If, if there was one thing that I thought that I knew was how to train my guys, and it turned out everything that I was teaching them was, well, it wasn't up to the best of of, of the current understanding. Uh, we've had to change everything, um, and again, you get a better understanding of how to present material, how it's absorbed to those you're you're you're, you're dealing with also the repetition needed, right? It's not just about engaging in, in skill transfer. It's about teaching and training in dimensions and the repetition needed to, you know, to, to get that to the point of automaticity. It's really changed the way we, we work. We're still processing, you know, how to deal with success and failure on our job. We very rarely talk about success. We just we expect that. We we deal perhaps too much on failure. OK, we know all about the losses. How about the times when folks performed in, in similar type situations and the outcome was was favorable? You know, we have right. so many examples where, where, where these unbelievable men and women performed so magnificently and nobody knows it. Uh, and and it's, it's, it's an amazing it's an amazing thing. Jerry, I'm going to jump to uh, the rescue diver stuff on the surface. Rescue diving and firefighting look remarkably similar. Both involve being in an environment with limited visibility, both involve searching for life, both involve being encapsulated in PPE, and both demand the use of air. Only a small percentage of firefighters are rescue divers. And the first question I would ask is, what are some of the significant differences between operating on the fire floor or floor above versus
2: diving below surface? I mean, this may seem too simplistic, but on a dive job, there's no building to read as your size up. (laughs) <laughs> you're just looking at water. <laughs> so uh, to me, the lack of a size up is a big one. You know, we talked about that unknown. Uh, what the hell's down there? What's going there? And, you know, you know hopefully you maybe you have done a little bit of pre-planning, but you, you just can't. And, and obviously you're, you're dealing with uh, an environmental issue that you can't control and what changes there. So, you know, I have no building to see. And the operation is just unique in itself of you're on a line, you're on a tethered line, and your sense of direction and movement comes from another person. So you don't know where you're going, you can't see where you're going, and you got to wait for a guy to tell you which way to go, when to stop, when to turn. So that, that adds a whole other kind of element of you know, being able to remain calm, hearing, communicating, you know, that's one aspect, the environmental part. You know, I can't get low to the floor and take my mask off. <laughs> so I'm stuck in terms of that aspect. And, and then just from a, a, a pure mechanical part, you know, you're in water. So the resistance of water is 500 times greater than air. So everything I'm doing is restricted. You know, I've got forces that are I'm, I'm pushing myself against. So it's just a a totally different type environment in that regard.
1: Sure. And and from a human factors perspective, what makes rescue diving challenging psychologically
2: and physiologically? Yeah. So I think, you know, you just, you can take a basic swimming pool, right? Is the water cold? Is it deep? Is it nighttime? (laughs) Maybe it's just some human factors of, of water and fear, but psychologically, I know night dives, black water, cold water, deep water, all things psychologically, you know, am I going to get entangled? You know, what the heck's down here? And that's one of the challenges we run into here is that so much stuff is just thrown into the water by people because our water is very accessible with the inner harbor. It's a, it's a walking promenade. So, um, So that's an issue. So just like we've talked about, that fear of the unknown, and then just the psychological or the physiological part, you know, you have to deal with, with gas laws. You know, you can't hold your breath underwater. That can have some pretty dire consequences with you when you're diving compressed gas. You know, how do you change your breathing? You want longer exhales than inhalations because you want to not retain CO2. So, you know, you've got some of just of those aspects of, you know, decompression sickness, encapsulation, exertion. But something that I, a couple of us have talked about and something that we really have not looked at is how do you take working a 24-hour shift and you maybe go to a fire or two? So now you've got increased levels of CO and now you're being asked to go to a dive job where you have to now dive in excess of maybe 20 to 30 feet. How does that impact you as well?
1: Yes, yes. And also physiologically, just uh, now we're in warmer weather. You, know, you go to a couple jobs in, in, in Baltimore, and you're pretty smoked. Not just physically, right. but your, your ability. It's curious now, I'm not a diver, know nothing about diving. But as I've thought about this question, right, uh, Jason, Tim Clark, and myself have kind of been probing this question of, what happens when you can't see? Now, everything about our system as human beings, our primary data input is visual, right? As opposed to like a, a rat, which is olfactory smell. If all of our systems are geared towards, towards gaining that information visually, what happens when, we, when, you, when you turn it off, when you lose it, when it's not there? And when you open up your eyes and the screen is black, your, your body is yearning for inputs it's, it's, it's yearning to know things and those systems are are, are negated um, that may help to explain uh, the the, in, the incredible amounts of, of operational stress that we that we generate on, on our people ultimately you to have to prove this um, through study but the idea that we can just and you, you said it so well you go to a couple of jobs and then you mask up you know you You jump into a suit and then you jump into the inner harbor. Wait a minute. Nobody's ever said, nobody's ever even thought about, hey, are there any negative consequences to putting those guys in the water? Uh, And here's where that understanding and and collecting the data can inform better choices. Um, Because even if you're in great shape like you are, you probably do not have the mental capacity that you did when the tour started. Because all of these impacts that they're upon you, and when you're diving, you, you really have to have your thinking cap on, right? It's not like you you can't get to a window and say, "Okay, get me a ladder."
2: What's your What are your thoughts on that, Jer? The mental part is definitely, I think that's where if you can create that routine and and if you have uh, a good team around you, and I think that's one of the things that's led to. Uh, a good part of our success, especially in the recent years with some of the dive jobs we've had. I just recently heard uh, an FDNY officer, he described training in the sense of repetitive, relevant, realistic. And boy, if those aren't three key elements to to public safety diving and in, in trying to help navigate you know, some of that aspect is key, and and you know, and again, diving is so much team driven. Again, you've got that one guy, at least for the diver end. It's a it's a somewhat of a simplistic aspect of, I know where I got to go, and and what I'm going to face, um, and hopefully he can use some things like fader, we've talked about with breathing, visualization, um, things to get himself calm before he gets ready to get in that water. Because he's already fighting, like you said, heavy gear, potentially being hot. So that's going to start pushing up his heart rate. Um, but hopefully that confidence is also coming from when you see that team and and everyone's working together. That that really is huge. You know, because diving is not a one-man show. It's not a guy just going and making a great grab. Uh, there's a lot to it. You know, There's there's, there's a lot more to it. Great. So, Jerry, I'm going to switch gear again.
1: You've experienced some great success as a rescue diver and also survived a near-death experience as a rescue diver. In the past several months, you've made dive rescues on two separate occasions. In 2011, you were involved in a dive mishap that left you unconscious when pulled from the water. You were transported to a trauma facility in the hyperbaric chamber for critical care. I would like to explore both epic winds and the harrowing mishaps through the human factors lens.
2: So the the uh, the mishap was an event that definitely circles to something that uh, Jason, the leadership under fire, has always pushed about the complacency aspect, but also normalizing deviance. And and what I mean by that is in the sense of just some of the corners that we cut, and just some of the inattention to detail, and systemically on the dive team, and, and I think even sometimes in the fire department overall, we, we just attribute culturally that we're lucky. You know, we're lucky. And, you know, we, we get away with when bad things happen. Well, this day, that wasn't the case. So, fortunately, the training that I had up to that point, uh, particularly what I needed to do to get myself back up to the surface from the bottom, which was releasing my weight belt. You know, that was something that was just drilled in with repetitive drills and teaching and instruction. So I had at least a clear goal that I knew when I was in trouble and running out of air, the only way I could get up was to get that weight belt off and I was able to do it. At that point, I had to turn everything else over to God and the guys that went in to get me because I went unconscious. But at least... I was on the surface unconscious. I wasn't laying 28 feet at the bottom of the reservoir that they had to go down and go get me and drag me back up. So, the success part when we talk about, and we've had a handful of really good dive jobs collectively as a team in the past couple of years. And it just goes to, you know, full blown guys being committed, dedicated. But learning that some of those keys we already talked about, positive self-talk, gaining confidence, and, and not swaying when things are difficult uh, and overcoming it. And again, we, it's cliche getting comfortable with the uncomfortable, um, but, but that's the key with where we just were blessed to dive twice a month to, to saturate our guys in that diving environment as much as we can just getting experience, getting experience, that's, that, that has paid off, you know, it's just paid off huge.
1: And so what have you learned about yourself and the human element of rescue diving from these events?
2: From the human side, and and particularly from the the last two uh, dive jobs I had, you know, so I'm watching my heart rate in route, and I'm at that 120, 130, you know, jacked up, defined, it's a, we know it's a dive job, and I got to you know the way we respond. We don't have the the, the, the equipment on our rig. It comes in a, in a specialized scuba truck, so I had to wait for that. But you know, getting giving myself a little bit of time to breathe, get myself ready mentally, and you know, what's funny that the, the dressing part of me, we both calls that I had where we were able to make these two good grabs as a team. The dressing, I forgot a, a key piece, and it's only because the routine was disrupted by more hands in the pot than we're used to. So we quickly just kind of got ahead of ourselves, but it was a very easy adjustment due to the procedures we have in place. But my point is about the whoop and the heart rate was that the guys joke with me about going into Zen mode. But the minute, literally before I splashed on both dives, I got my heart rate to about 78 to 82. Wow. And that's the key, is getting myself reset.
1: Wow. That's incredible.
2: That's incredible. But that's, again, that's takes works, time, awareness, learning about this stuff, using the data. And it, it's huge. And part of it is, Giving some of that data to your divers. You know, technology now, we now dive a heads up display that actually tells my diver how fast he's breathing every minute and how much air he's using every minute. And that's a nice tool for him to get a good reset on the bottom, to just take a minute, reset, and keep moving, and to keep those numbers in that set range where we want them. Sure.
0: Listeners, I'd like to take a moment to share that the ebook Fire Psych, Mental Toughness and the Valor Mindset on the Fireground, is now available for purchase on the Leadership Under Fire website. Click shop in the menu in the top right corner of the page and secure your copy for just $15. For those who don't know, Fire Psych introduces and advances mental performance concepts and skills using the Valor Mindset Framework. The central objective of FirePsych is to provide fire officers and firefighters with an improved understanding of human performance under operational stress, while introducing concepts and skills that enhance physiological function, self and situational awareness, and tactical resilience. When originally published in 2014, it joined a lengthy list of books that sought to enhance fireground performance and safety. However, it was the first book to exclusively examine the mental aspects of fireground performance. Dr. Mike Askin and Eric Nuremberg wrote the book in Leadership Under Fire's formative years, and the book has served as a primer for human performance optimization efforts in the FDNY, the Milwaukee Fire Department, and several other fire rescue departments.
1: How have you organized or arranged all of these firsthand dives into your slide deck? in a way that favorably impacts your performance.
2: So that's all attributed to the training I got when I got my instructor, and that was I had to go out for a eight-consecutive-day program uh, out in the uh, Midwest. And the, the instructors, uh, one, he was a Maui officer. The, the, he was a captain in the fire department in Maui, Hawaii, but he was also... Uh, marine recon diver and then the head of the program who was a battalion chief in Lincoln Nebraska who you and him Jim would just we'd be a perfect pair he reads incessantly and he obtained his PhD uh, basically around psychology but specifically stress inoculation and he got excellent access to the Navy and the Army in terms of their combat swimmer programs etc cetera. And, you know, it's all about the mindset that, you know, Brad Tavenet was vital in telling us, look, every day is Christmas. I mean, just something as simple as that, but to telling yourself that, you know, look at what you're getting to do, the opportunity and, you know, you've got the training, you're ready for it. Let's go in positive Good self talk and tell yourself you're gonna you're gonna freaking do this. And that was yeah. the key of my first real grab was the minute getting off that deck was I'm finding this lady. I mean that was it versus I'm scared or I'm worried about this, worried about that. And the power of that mental flip, you know, was just huge.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's great. In addition to functioning as a rescue diver, you serve as an active trainer for the BCFD's dive rescue team what human performance themes or concepts have influenced you in how you train other
2: divers so the one thing and it's the first day of dive school when i teach our guys is and most of them have never been doing recreational scuba so they're they're learning all of this right out firsthand but you know how do you try to get a mindset that they can lock into to start to deal with the fear of being underwater, running out of air, and it's real simple. I I tell them there's only really one rule I need you to burn in your brain, and that is that the only emergency underwater involves air. So if you have air, there's no emergency. Just locking that into their brains of, hey, if I have air, It's no emergency. It's just an inconvenience. That's been a big one to help them. But even before getting in the water, using a lot of visualization and just practicing on land, your gear, how it works, and giving them time to visualize them doing the actions. Uh, You know, taking your BC off underwater, what side, where the hoses go, redonning it. Things like that. Uh, it is just key to help keeping them calm. That's all I care about. I just want the guys to be calm and confident. You yeah. know, we got to give them the dives for that. You got to get the reps, no doubt, and it's got to be good training and realistic. But you've got to build everything before that tactical or that tactile part comes to touching the gear. I've got to get them ready for set for success upstairs. So. So there were so those were some of the rules. Every day's Christmas. you know, when we did our <laughs> checkout dives, it was in basically November and thirty degree air temperature. The water was actually warmer than the air temperature, but you know I could hear them humming off the truck, freezing their butt off, Hey, every day's Christmas. And I'm like,' That's yep. exactly where I need you to be.
1: Have your divers that you've trained have they have they caught the the human performance bug? Are they? Are they really moving to understand this as well? The, the young
2: guys, they are very receptive to the mental part. The guys that I have on the younger side, some of these guys physically are just, I mean, they're just awesome. They're rock solid. They've got that part in place, the, the physical part of taking care of themselves. the The mental part, I think, is really the key. And that's where I find my job is overall for everybody, young guys or older guys, but to keep them thinking positive, team driven, and, you know, what tools can I take to get myself in a a position of success? Uh, And a large part of that goes to, you know, what they're saying in their heads as they're getting ready to go in the water. You know, because there's not a lot they can control when they go in. We've talked about that they can't see, they're swimming blind, and, you know, they've got to be open to friction. You've got to be able to handle something on your own to some degree down there initially, getting caught up, entangled, uh, or finding the victim. You know, we just simply can't get another diver down to you right away. And in trying to build up some resiliency, just in themselves that I can, I can fix this or I can handle this problem goes a long way. So Jerry, what firefighting book has had the most
1: influence or impact on you?
2: I was reading an article in my high school years and it was following a line of duty death in the Philadelphia fire department and At that time, my exposure to the fire department was through my dad. He was a volunteer in the suburbs that we lived in. Firehouse Magazine was a a normal staple on the kitchen table. And I picked it up to read about, in April 1995, an article was published by the Philadelphia Fire Department Commissioners. He was Commissioner Richmond. And the article was labeled Uncommon Valor. And it was very specific about an incident at the Rising Sun Baptist Church fire where Philadelphia had a multi line of duty death and the heroic efforts, particularly of rescue one was highlighted as the members went into a, a basement that involved fire, but also elevated water levels and just Herculean efforts to go try to rescue the firemen that were trapped and they were able to get the brothers out firemen did pass away but when i read the degree of just this the 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 selfless danger that these guys went into to go save their own guys i knew right then and there in my template that one it, it just affirmed i wanted to be a fireman but two I definitely wanted to add to my resume at some point working in the rescue company. And that was a big reason when truck 15 closed in 2012, I had the opportunity to go to rescue one uh, due to being truck 15 disbanded. I jumped right on it. one for the diving aspect, being in special operations. But as Bob said in your last podcast, it's all about the fires. And they were the unit that went to the most fires in the city. And that's where I wanted to go. I was all about fires. I just wanted to go to fires alone.
1: That's great. I would say that given when I was growing up, it was never ever on my radar screen about being a firefighter. I never read anything about firefighters. If there is one book, though, that I wish every young firefighter could read, it would be 102 Minutes by Jim Dwyer. It is the only... Definitive account. I'm writing that down. Yeah. The only definitive account that occurred uh, on that fateful September morning. Jim Dwyer and the Times, they sued under the freedom of information law to gain access to our handy talkie, our radio transmissions. And to read some of those things, it's just, it's really upsetting. Um, you read about Patty Brown, I mean, the patron saint of all firefighters. Patty's on the 35th floor. He, he has to use a landline on a desk in order to call the dispatchers, to have the dispatchers call the command post and tell them that he's on 35, he's got burned victims, he's headed up, he's heading up up higher. It's also imperative because we're now at a point where in very short order, just a couple of years, there will be there will no longer be any any New York City firefighters who were on the job on that day. So all of these, all of these memories, all these memorials, all, all of these 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 tributes, will mean nothing if folks don't understand the underlying story of what happened that day, uh, and the incredible heroism of, of those that day. So, I have that book in my locker. It's available to any guy or gal who wishes to read it. And uh, if there was one that I wish
2: people would do, it's that one. Yeah, and I think you know what your hitting on is reading is so critical because especially today due to that we don't go to the fires that you know you guys and and the guys in the war years went to there's a huge operational gap that you have to now resort to reading you have to go to some kind of you know learning tool that's just not going to involve you picking up that tool and going out and and physically doing it but there's got to be an educational a reading end to it and books are just awesome for filling those gaps and it just also to me reading really envelops creativity I mean it really you know as you read your mind you start to pick up on things that you know you just don't even realize and you just start to build uh, that slide deck that's there that one day you just, you know, you may never know, but you, you read about it and, it and it's in place that you can you can use it. I, I think the reading's just, you know, super, super, super critical. Like you had mentioned earlier or you had asked me earlier, one day we were talking about, you know, when you went to the rescue, obviously you came from a ladder. So, you know, what were some of the things you had to do to get yourself up to speed? And reading was one of them you know and obviously like the one of the fundamental books is Ray Downey's book The Rescue Company and that was a great foundation for me to walk in there to to start building upon what the guys were showing me and then I could add that to what I was reading and that was really powerful and helpful
1: you can go back to what Preston Klein always talks about right that we train for certainty and we educate for uncertainty
2: What are the one or
1: two books that have nothing to do with firefighting that you have enjoyed and believe make you a
2: better firefighter? So the two books that I have, uh, the first, The Deep Survival, which we are well known to in LUF. It was a book I read very early on, probably back around 2012, 2013, probably around the early inception of Leadership Under Fire. Uh, And that struck a chord on on many levels, from the the mental models uh, all the way just through getting a process for yourself uh, and caring yourself and thinking about things and dealing with events and, you know, what what you can do and then where those limitations are as well. Uh, And then fear, emotion, just all of that, how that plays in part to it, I think are huge. Um, the, The one I thought from like a team leadership aspect was critical, especially when we were rebuilding the dive team after my accident. So the team got shut down after my accident, 2011, 2013, we get the team back in service and, you know, now trying to be a leader of men in the sense of, you know, getting these guys bought in, getting that energy and dedication, uh, It was a Marine Corps book called One Bullet Away and just tons of nuggets for, you know, a soldier trying to work with his guys in combat. You know, how he relates to them, what they went through. And I just found that to be invaluable in terms of approach to trying to starting a new team and getting us to build and kind of get the oars and the water rowing all in the same direction. That was a huge one. They were really, really uh, beneficial. And then it's funny, uh, I'm just going to throw one more, but I I recently went to the LUF website to see what you guys recommend for reading. And a good lifelong friend growing up is Dan Salafrank. Dan and I both started in the same volunteer fire company. Dan's now part of LUF and he had a book and it was based on D-Day and the Big Red One, the First Division in the Army. And that book, just phenomenal in terms of hitting on some of the tenets of combat Of that applies to firefighting about your gear, how you dress, travel light, travel right. Um, and paying attention to those little details uh, just totally resonate today uh, on being a farmer, especially you guys in New York. I think about how the, the weight that you guys carry, especially with the PSS, the, the floors you got to walk up, the aerials up to the roof, at least most of our, our buildings are a little shorter. We always have the joke, you know, small buildings, tall tails. That's where I came from working in the ghetto <laughs> East Baltimore. So we, we're we lucky in that end. But man, I think about you guys and the amount of gear you have, and it's just I think about what these poor guys were coming off the boats in D-Day, and how they were just burdened down with equipment, and, and it just led to detrimental effects to their survival.
1: I, I would offer, uh, if I could answer these. The first, first one would be on combat, uh, which was the one that started this this journey, at least for me. And the second one, uh, and I. Sp- I, I talked about it in the journal this week, which is Sapolsky's work behavior, and the idea being that, you know, leaders need to have a deep understanding of what's actually happening to us. It's that it's, when we grow, we, it's, it's beyond just the, the superficial understanding that we need to be able to explain exactly what is happening to our people I'll also refer again to to something that Coleman Ruiz talks about, that leaders need to be grounded, especially senior leaders, need to be grounded in certain areas. Decision theory, training methodologies, human factors. So that when they have those conversations at that 30,000 foot level, They are engaging in in, in a deeper and more robust conversation and and behave as one that can get them there. To wrap up, Jerry, you've expressed a lot of uh, enjoyment with podcasts. Could you talk briefly about some of those that that deeply resonate with you?
2: The FDNY puts out, I believe, a a good one from kind of a a tactical operational one, and that's I very much have enjoyed the FDNY Pro podcasts. Uh, They've had some good ones on building collapse. Mike Champo's had some good and some interesting storefront fires. And I can directly attest of using directly knowledge that I've learned from those podcasts right smack onto the job as me being a company officer and having good intel and information that I learned out of those podcasts and directly being able to put the company and the men in a path of success. And I i can't tell you how awesome that's felt. So uh, a couple of the FDNY Pro podcasts were home runs. The military out of West Point does one called The Spear, and it's a combat-based podcast. The last two, uh, one was the battalion commander of uh, WANAA, And the challenges that he had to deal with, especially when he was faced with having to deal with the blowback of the investigations and how difficult it was to be an Army officer and to still look out for the company himself in battling the organization. You know, he had so long worked for. That was a very powerful one. So The Spear is a very good podcast. And then Uh, One out of a grassroots for Baltimore is called Out of the Blocks. And what's fascinating about that podcast is it's in it's about a 45 minute podcast that an interviewer goes out and interviews all the people that live in one city block in Baltimore City. And this person has done numerous sections of the city before the riots, after the riots, all over different sections of the city. And it's just an awesome podcast to feel what what is going on at the street level for the people that live and work in those neighborhoods. And they're very open to the podcast. There's a lot of vulnerability there. You're hearing some tough stories. Um, but you also see some of the successes of particularly how the police used to work back in the older days with, uh, you know, a patrolman on a footbeat and, and knowing everyone in the stores and, you know, just kind of where things have changed politically and then just from our operational police and fire over the years and where that's kind of left the citizens. So that's also been neat to get a grassroots look at the city of Baltimore, the residents called out of the blocks
1: that's great that's great jerry thank you i'm going to take the easy one and say that uh, i love any podcast that, that patty murphy is working on
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay so jerry we're gonna yeah wrap I, mean, up I, would, I would definitely be remiss not to say luf is obviously on my cue deck and you know the bob athanas was tremendous but uh the recording of patty and Russell is just home run because the 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 chemistry there with some of the things Patty had read pre that interview and then just some of her other experiences, the Rissell podcast was, was top notch. Uh, I love listening to that one. Um, so now it's 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 great. It's it's awesome work that Patty and you guys are all doing. So
1: those of us who are kind of out in front get a lot of the credit, but uh, this organization would be nowhere without her. Thank you again, Patty. And Jerry, thank you, my friend. We'll be in touch.
2: All right, thank you, guys. Have a great one.
0: Thank you for tuning into the episode. I'm excited to share with you that the Leadership Under Fire book club is backed by popular demand a careful examination of history's most accomplished leaders reveals that their success was strongly correlated to a scholarly appreciation for literature, reading, and reflection. Upon its formal inception in 2012, the Leadership Under Fire team launched a recommended reading list. In subsequent years, many leaders in the LUF network have been inspired to form book clubs in their organizations, units, and teams. We're hopeful that this practice continues and thought it appropriate to canvas our LUF advisors a few of their personal recommended reads. You can view this by visiting leadershipunderfire.com and clicking on book club in the menu. Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies, Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com.